Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Hot Wallet. I'm Scott McGregor at Scott Trades on Twitter. This is a podcast for active investors and anyone who wants to level up their knowledge in both traditional and digital markets. We are officially launching the podcast today with, in my opinion, one of the best forward thinkers in investing and digital assets. He also has some of the best socks in the game. From Morgan Creek Capital, it's Mark Yuska. From the bottom, ain't no half-stepping. I'm the dog, I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach, it ain't no half-repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. Let's go. Mark Yusko is the CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Creek Capital and Morgan Creek Digital, managing about $2 billion worth of assets. He's a frequent face on CNBC and a must follow on Twitter. I also recommend Mark's Around the World video podcast. Links for everything about Mark will be in the show notes. Uh, welcome. Mark, uh, thank you so much for being the first guest ever on this podcast. Uh, you know, I've had friends bug me to start a podcast for many years. And when I finally got around to thinking about doing it, you were the first person uh, that came to mind. And the fact that you agreed to it, and I'm just some rando on Twitter, I think it really speaks uh, to your character. So thank you for being here. Well, no, Scott, I, I'm honored to be asked. And uh uh, look, I I think that um, you should help out the community, and you know you you reached out, and there was a little serendipity, right? I mean, I'm not really good at my DMs, and uh, people will will acknowledge that. But uh, when I do see somebody who 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 makes a a request in a in a courteous way and in a supportive way, and has been a supportive member of the community, I'm, I'm happy to do it. So excited to be. Uh, Numero uno in uh, the Hot Wild podcast. <laughs> Fantastic. So before we get started, I got to show you my socks. Love, <laughs> love, love, love. And, uh, you know, I, I actually, I don't have, I don't have Bitcoin socks on today. I have, I just have regular pink socks. Wednesday is, is, uh, brain tumor awareness day. So it's wear pink okay. Wednesday. So I always wear pink on Wednesdays. I lost a friend to a brain tumor a number of years ago. Um, but normally I wear my, my Bitcoin socks and I am excited that in the mail are some hot wallet originals. So uh, I will, I will happily wear those Fridays. I, I, I go all in, I wear the Bitcoin orange pants and my crypto socks. So I will have the, the hot wallet socks on one of these coming Fridays. Amazing. Yes. I, I was designing those socks for you personally yesterday and they are in the mail. You should get them in, a, in about a week and a half or so. So uh, keep awesome. an eye out uh, for those. Uh, <laughs> it's so your sock, your sock game is just at another 
level. So we're going to need you to do Oh, out- well, okay. So we can do that too. I have <laughs> Bitcoin Moon on today, baby. That See, that's what we need. To the good stuff, you know, we got to do the reveal. The the orange bull market pants are back and the Bitcoin bull is Wow. Back. Wow. Does- I'm going to do the sock reveal uh very quickly. So uh, Brent we didn't have know this Bitcoin was coming. Roller coaster on. <laughs> wow. And uh, it is it is you know, truly we've, we've lost ties, right? I I didn't like wearing ties, but I love ties because it was the one way a guy could express fashion. And, you know, we're all suited up and now we've all gone casual and here I am wearing a Henley. But uh, I, I, in fact, I look like the free guy guy with my, my Carolina blue Henley on today, uh, although I'm not as handsome as he is. But um, I think it's interesting in that socks have become my personality thing. So I, I do have a lot of crazy socks. And then I have these, these buddies that, you know, through Twitter, all my friends come from Twitter now, uh, at Mount Socks, which is such a great name, started sending me Bitcoin socks of all different flavors. And I, I wear those quite often. Very cool. Very cool. My sister got, got me these for Christmas. Uh, I, I think the year that I bought Bitcoin, which was 2020, she got them for me that year. And uh, that's and I've, so cool. I've been honestly, when, I've been saving them for when Bitcoin got to 100,000. That was going to be my Bitcoin stock day. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, what's funny too is I actually have some vintage uh, 2011 uh, Bitcoin socks that are still yellow, right? Because it was in 2011 that it went from yellow to orange. And I, have a, I actually have a really cool pair that shows there've been four Bitcoin logos. So there was the original and it actually said BC in a little circle. And then it went to the yellow B and then it went to an orange B that was just a regular B. Then it went to like the dollar sign B that we have now. Who designed the logo? Like who, who, and who decided, okay, this is what we're going with. No, no, exactly. It, well, basically Twitter, you know, and, and the community adopted. Now, so I, I don't remember who the actual designer was at each stage. There's a great history on it on the internet somewhere. But, but it is funny how that works, right? Is somebody designs a logo, sends it out into the Twitter sphere. And people say, oh, yeah, that's it. And then people start printing it and putting it on, logo, you know, on T-shirts and hats. And, and uh, it'll be interesting to see if it ever changes again. Because I, I do kind of like the one now. Very cool. Uh, That's amazing. A decentralized logo generation and proposed and and voted on by the crowd. So and I I don't mean to to, to that point. I I don't want to I don't want to take away from the person or persons who actually created the physical art because they're important. And I'm probably doing a disservice not remembering their name. But it is the community that really adopts everything in a decentralized world, which is the power of decentralization. And, and look, you know, you're sitting in, in the, uh, the epicenter or one of the epicenters of the whole centralized centralization versus decentralization thing in Canada. And, you know, I grew up on the left coast in Seattle and I used to do a lot of home and home uh, soccer weekends with, with teams in Vancouver. So I'm not like a Canadian expert or anything, but I, but I spent some time there. And uh, I think it is, interesting how a country known for friendliness and openness is now at the epicenter of this not so friendliness and seizure 
of, of, you know, free people's assets. I don't know. It's kind of scary. You know, we'll definitely get into that when we talk about the reasons uh, behind the why of uh, Bitcoin. First, I really want to dive into a little more on you and kind of your background. How did you get started in finance and how did you get Morgan Creek going? Yeah. And, and again, I, I always say, Scott, I don't do short well, and I, I don't want to leave enough time for all, all the great questions you've prepared. So I'll try. But I would say my life's just a series of happy accidents. I didn't actually plan to go into finance. I grew up literally wanting to be an architect uh, because, and you're too young to remember, but there was a show called The Brady Bunch. <laughs> and uh, The Brady Bunch had the main character, Mr. Brady, and he was an architect. And I was like, how cool is that? You get to build little models and draw pictures and so I went to school to be an architect and, and I stunk at it. And my professors let me know that. So I changed to engineering because that's what dad wanted me to do. And the thing that's good about engineering, teach you how to problem solve. So even though I hated it, it did teach me a structured approach to problem solving. But then I got some really good advice from, again, serendipity, girlfriend said, hey, why don't you do what you like? like there's a novel concept. Okay, I like science. So I changed to biology and chemistry and uh, said, I'm going to go be a doctor. And here's the crazy thing. I couldn't answer the question on the med school app. Why do you want to be a doctor? Because uh, I want to drive a Porsche because I don't want to work a lot of days. Those are bad answers. Um, and the reason I said that is because I worked in the emergency department for doctors who worked eight 24-hour shifts a month and all drove Porsches. And they're all handsome. And, and so it was great. And so- I decided not to go to med school. But when you graduate from college with a degree in biology and chemistry and you don't go to med school, there are only two jobs. You can be a consultant or a pharmaceutical sales rep. And this is 1985. And I was not 6'4 and handsome, not going to be a pharmaceutical sales rep. So got a job as a consultant. And again, serendipity, the partner said, you know, you've taken no business classes, no accounting, no finance. Why don't you go to business school? And you didn't do that right out of undergrad, but back then, University of Chicago would take a few people because they were trying to get you to go to a PhD program. So I got lucky. I, I got there. And, and then I took a job at an insurance company right out of business school. And then the big happy accident, the guy who was doing investments retired. And my, the CFO said, hey, you're the only guy who knows how to do spreadsheets. Go manage the portfolio. And you know, one thing led to another. And I ended up going back to my alma mater at Notre Dame to help manage the endowment came down here to North Carolina, hence the Carolina Blue, uh, back in 1998 to run the endowment there. And seven years later in 2004, I decided to leave to form Morgan Creek, to bring the endowment model of investing to other people. And what is the endowment model of investing? Well, it's really not complicated. It's a value investment strategy. You are equity-oriented, long-term focused. You invest in innovation as an asset class through private equity, venture capital, and that's about it. And so it was that alternative thinking about investments, you know, not just a 60-40 model, integrating alternatives, hedge funds, private, venture capital. And, and again, series of happy accidents. I made a bunch of venture capital investments with some of the great names in venture capital from Kleiner Perkins to Sequoia to Benchmark. And they invested in some amazing companies, Google, Yahoo, eBay, et cetera. And they made a lot of money. And so it hit me that investing in technological innovation early 
was the key to wealth creation. So it's my pinned tweet on Twitter, right? The greatest wealth is created by investing in something you believe in before others even understand. Mm-hmm. You'll be mocked and ridiculed, but it's worth it. And so the past decade, that's where I spent most of my time. And then four years ago, I formed Morgan Creek Digital. And now I spend all my time focused on digital assets, innovation, venture capital. That's a great I told story. you I don't do short well. No, man, that, that's a great story. I, you know, I'm, I'm someone who doesn't believe that there are accidents. I feel like life just prepares us for yeah. the forthcoming thing. So I think yeah. that that, uh, that that makes total sense. Yeah. So, well, uh, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Big time. What is your role as a chief investment officer? And you kind of touched on this a little bit with the value, but how do you how do you create that framework for allocating money into assets? You know, especially when it's large amounts of money, billions of dollars. So what's the process yeah, so, for you? Again, great, great question. Um, if you think about investment, right? There's four pieces. And most people do it upside down. They think the big decisions are which stock do I buy? Which bond do I buy? You know, should I own Ford or GM? The answer is maybe neither and maybe something else. Maybe not even a stock, maybe a commodity, maybe another innovative asset class. So the four steps are asset allocation, manager selection, portfolio construction, security selection. Asset allocation is which asset, right? Stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, hedge funds, private equity, real estate, venture capital, distressed equity, I mean, distressed debt, any sort of of big asset allocation. Within that asset allocation, it can be US, Europe, Japan, emerging markets, big cap, mid cap, small cap. So all those allocation decisions really drive, believe it or not, 85% of the returns. Only 15% comes from, okay, once I decide I want stocks, which manager do I pick? Do I do it myself? Do I do it with an outsource manager? Do a mutual fund? Do I do a ETF? Do I do a hedge fund? Then there's portfolio construction, very misunderstood and overlooked. But if I pick 10 managers, do I give them 10% each? Or do I give 50% to one and 5% to the others? That makes a big difference. Then security selection it's only about 15% of returns. 85% from asset allocation, manager selection, portfolio construction, and 15, 15.15% from security selection. So people agonize, you know, should I own GameStop or AMC? Sure, whatever. But what's really important is should I be not looking at stocks, should I be looking at crypto? Should I be looking within crypto at Bitcoin or should I be looking at the Ethereum world? Or should I be thinking of something next phase in the metaverse? Or, And so to answer your question, how do I take a framework? My framework starts from only four ways to make money. Really simple. If you take no risk, you make no return. You put your money in the risk-free rate, cash, and you get paid essentially zero in real terms. Because the long term for 100 years, the, the risk-free rate, which averaged 4%, equaled inflation. Now, the problem is today, the risk-free rate is close to zero and inflation is not. So you're actually losing money every single day that you take no risk. That's called financial repression. The central banks globally 
are financially repressing people to move the excess deposits because there's excess deposits because they created excess money into risk assets. So you can choose one of four risks. You can take credit risk. You can buy a bond. A bond is a contractual claim, meaning if I lend money to a company and I buy a bond, they must pay me or I can sue them. All right. That's why the return on bonds is very low, a couple percent above risk-free. Then you can take equity risk, second risk. So equity risk, you get paid a decent amount. You get 7% above risk-free long-term, 5% above bonds, because it's a contingent claim. You only get paid back if all the bondholders get paid back first. Okay. Third risk you can take is illiquidity risk. I can do a private investment where I can't sell. Like if I have IBM shares, I can sell them to you tomorrow. If I have a private company, I have to convince you to buy them. And you may say, well, I'm going to pay a discount because I have to hold them for a period of, of lockup. Fourth risk is structure or leverage. Right? Leverage is just a tool, but it, it, it increases the risk of an asset. And Howard Marks, one of my favorite people, says it best. Leverage can never make a bad investment good, but it can, and occasionally does, make a good investment bad because you're forced to sell at the wrong time. So I start with that framework of, of those four risks, I only want to take risks for myself or my clients where we're being properly and adequately compensated. So today in the bond market, you are not being compensated. Another great Canadian, Greg Foss, Foss, Greg Foss, right? He'll say it. It's the worst risk reward we've ever seen. They are return-free risk. Bonds today are return-free risk. And only bad things can happen if you own bonds. So don't do it. Second risk, equity risk. Most markets around the world, not really attractively priced. Prices are really high. Valuations are really high. Now, there are some pockets. Chinese tech stocks got beaten down 90%. You should buy those. It's like one of my things. You should buy what's on sale. In fact, Scott, investing is the only thing in the world when things go on sale, people run out of the store. You put wedding dresses on sale, people run in and will beat each other with their purses to get a wedding dress. You put food on sale, right? People knock each other over to get inside the store. Black Friday, right? People are knocking each other over the head to get a PS5. But when stocks go on sale, people run away. And the cheaper the price, the further and faster they run or crypto. So it's crazy. So I want to get compensated for the risks. Illiquidity risk today, really well compensated because nobody wants to be illiquid because everybody's afraid what's going to happen with the war in Ukraine? What's going to happen with the Cold War with China? What's going to happen with government taxes? What's going to happen with seizure of assets that I contributed to the convoy? So people are afraid. So they increase liquidity, which puts more pressure on all the problems that the central banks created by printing too much money. And so illiquidity, private equity, private real estate, private energy, private debt, venture capital, return potential here is really high. So I've now moved most of my time, resources, allocation, passion into the venture capital space because I think the risk rewards better. Uh, yeah, that's very in-depth. I really appreciate you going uh, into into such detail. You know, I'm just a swing trader. I just trade momentum and, you know, I'm riding trends and that kind of thing. But it really kind of gives me 
a lot to think about when you know you kind of break things down into silos. Every aspect of risk kind of lives in its own well, world. Well, the interesting thing is, is trading is really important, right? And and trading is not bad or good, just like investing is not bad or good. There are good investors and there are bad investors. There are good traders and there are bad traders. The difference is time horizon, right? I mean, traders' time horizon is usually much shorter than an investor's. In fact, what's, what's the old adage? What's, what's an investment? A trade gone wrong. <laughs> so then you're an investor because you're committed. I think what's interesting is the things that make traders really good, things like discipline and focus and uh, concentration, in many ways are the antithesis of sound investing principles, but they can be part and parcel, right? I can have a trading strategy inside an investment piece of my portfolio, right? Within my equity bucket, I can have people who are long-term buyers of value equities, but I could also have momentum traders, or I could have people who, who want to take advantage of, of arbitrage, right? Tra- you know, trading and arbitrage. So, Again, not good or bad, but very different. It's kind of like uh, there's a famous hedge fund manager, Steve Mandel, recently retired from a firm called Lone Pine. Lone Pine spun out of, of Tiger Management, and you know I've I've had the greatest job in the world for you know three decades. I got paid to talk to the to, to go around the world and talk to the smartest people in the world about how to invest. Right? I mean, I allocated capital to. Nobel laureates, to superstar investment managers, to titans of industry, to the George Soros's, the Julian Robertson's, the Stan Druck and Miller's, the, you know, all these amazing people. And, and usually in people are good analysts or good portfolio managers. And there's a big difference. An analyst is someone who's really good at the numbers, really good at the, at the micro level and the details. And portfolio managers are usually really bad at the analytical stuff, but they're really good at allocating capital and looking at trends and you know intuiting the future. And it's it really has to do a little bit with left brain, right brain. I was just going right. to say different sides of the brain being. Oh used no, no, hundred percent. Right? And in the best book ever written on this subject, it's called the Dow Jones Averages, T A O, and it's it's about ancient Chinese philosophy and investing. You can't get it in print. You got to buy it secondhand at Amazon, but uh, Bennett Goodspeed was this genius. He was a Buddhist, and and he he merged this this philosophy, and it all came down to left brain, right brain. And part of the problem for most people, particularly guys, and particularly guys who are investors, they're overly analytical, so they're constantly driving, looking in the rearview mirror, and when the road turns, they drive right off the cliff, mm-hmm. and so there's an interesting perspective of being able to use your whole brain, the right-hand side of your brain, the left hand, left-handedness, the more intuitive, you know, in fact, it's called women's intuition for a reason because uh, they tend to be a little more right-brained, a little more intuitive, and they actually will look out the, the windshield. And I think that is really what separates, and back to Steve, Steve was amazing because he was both an amazing analyst and an amazing portfolio manager. I mean, there was no one better at analyzing consumer companies than Steve, but there was no one better at running a hedge fund and being a portfolio manager than Steve. Not no one, but very few. And so 
you'll see I'm known, I'm prone to hyperbole. So everything is the greatest <laughs> or the worst. Um, as my wife says, frequently wrong, but never in doubt. I'm like, well, occasionally, <laughs> occasionally wrong, never in doubt. And, and, I've, and not in doubt. Doubt is really important in investing. And I know I'm rambling, but certainty will get you killed in investing. Doubt will keep you alive. And so I have strong convictions, but I always have doubt. And I will change my mind in a heartbeat. In fact, one of the things that drives me crazy, people will go on Twitter and they'll comb through my stream and they'll find something that four years ago didn't turn out. And say, look, you were wrong. I'm like, dude, I have changed my mind seven times in the past four (laughs) years. And yeah, I'm wrong all the time. I don't care. Because as Soros said, it ain't about whether you're wrong or right. It's how much money you make when you're right and how much money you lose when you're wrong. And if you have the ability to truncate your losses and make them small, but let your winners run, it doesn't matter if you're wrong. In fact, I argue winners lose more than losers. 100%. Because winners aren't afraid of acting. Losers are so paralyzed of being wrong, they don't act. So they never win. That is uh, certainly true in active investing. You know, I take small losses. Why do I take small losses? Because I don't want to take big losses. Big losses. You know, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you touched on a lot of great points uh, there, Mark. Let's talk about the current market conditions. You know, last few years, as you know, has been, you know, quite a wicked ride. I don't want to go through the whole history of from 2020 to here. Maybe mm-hmm. let's just talk about the last couple of months. As you know, the market has kind of been choppy. Crypto has been very weak since November. Um, you know, maybe talk about where we are currently, how we got here, and then what you see for the next three to six months. Yeah. So let, let's break it into a couple pieces. Let's go back to go forward. So let's go back to March of 2020, just for a second. What happened in March of 2020 was unthinkable in hindsight, right? No one could have ever anticipated that governments around the world will collectively lose their minds and, and, and put policies in place that would destroy economic growth and, and create the supply chain disaster we have today. No one could have anticipated that. So it was the response, not the bug, that caused the problems. But it wasn't even that. It was the policy response by the central banks to print incredible amounts of money that created a steroid-induced rally from you know March of 20 to the middle to August of 2021. So let's start in August of 2021. If you look at August of 2021, suddenly the bond market, which had miraculously rallied while the dollar was being and other currencies were being destroyed, suddenly turned and went the other way. Interest rates started to tick up. Also curiously, and maybe not so curious, economic growth started to slow. You know, after the big steroid-induced rally started to slow. Equities, though, went crazy in the summer and peaked in, in the fall. Why? Well, because interest rates had fallen so much, people want to pay more when interest rates are low, and suddenly there was the promise of the Fed and others reversing their long-term you know, uh, stimulus, and that must mean that things were getting better. So there was all this confluence of events and everything was working well. 
But in November, to your point, a couple things happened. So one, crypto started to get hammered. Well, why did crypto get hammered? Well, crypto got hammered because they approved a futures-based ETF in the US, which sold a billion dollars on the first day. The problem with futures of anything is it creates an imbalance in supply and demand in the paper world. So if you think about in the old days, if I had a barrel of oil that I wanted to sell you, I had to have access to a physical barrel of oil in order to make a promise to sell it to you. Now I don't have to have that. I can go in the futures market and I can create a paper barrel of oil. I can sell it to you. And as long as we settle up the contract before the end of the period, no harm, no foul. Well, what does that do? That actually took you as a buyer of oil out of the physical market and into this paper market. So what you see is the ability of uh, commodity markets where there's high futures activity, gold, oil, silver, things like that. The price has been very stable um, in certain times, subject to big spikes and big collapses. So remember, oil prices went way up and then Saudi crashed them to actually negative, And now they've gone way up again. Same thing with you know, nickel prices, same thing with Bitcoin prices. Everybody was buying Bitcoin last year. And then suddenly all the banks could go short. Well, if you can go short in the futures market and there's no demand in the physical market, what happens to price? It starts to have downward pressure. Well, here's the problem. In every bull market, you go from investor-driven markets to investor plus speculator traders to investor plus speculator plus gambler and then leveraged gamblers. Like the worst possible thing in any market are the people who are, are trading with high levels of, of debt or margin. So what happens is when those people get liquidated overnight, prices start collapse even more and that cascade. So crypto prices went down first, then equity prices started to come down, then bond prices started to accelerate down, yields started to accelerate up. Now you got the perfect storm of, oh my God, the Fed is going to come in and crush everything. And so fear started to take over. And you know, first part of January, everything's going down. And thankfully, uh, about mid-January, crypto prices kind of hit a floor. And one thing about crypto that's interesting is it's a network, right? And so Metcalf's law says the more participants in the network, the more valuable the network. So there is a value of the network. The problem is price is a liar. Price is what two people agree to exchange a small amount, it can be above value or below value. At 35K, it's modestly below fair value. So enough people then said, enough is enough. Most of the leverage speculators gone, started to creep back up and we've crept back up since. Equities were going down, going down, going down until what? War. War is always good for the market, which is crazy when you think about it, but not so crazy when you think, what, what, is, what are most of the wars of the last 50 years? They're not really big kinetic wars. They're mostly, mostly dropping bombs in the desert. Now, that doesn't mean civilians aren't killed. It doesn't mean it's a good thing. I'm not trying to excuse it. But if you look at most of the occupations from Syria to Iraq to Iran to you know, Afghanistan, they've mostly been means of inflating GDP through defense contracts. Okay, 
So war was good for markets and it made the Fed back off and other central banks back off on this promise of ending free, free money. So Fed balance sheet expanded, ECB balance sheet expanded, despite protestations to the contrary. And even the, the, the Chinese, once their stocks were down 85, 90%, said, all right, fine, we will stimulate. So now you got QE in China too. So all of that created this little you know, check mark market we've seen in the last couple of weeks. And now we're at a funky place, back to overvaluation in equity markets, Bond markets look really punky uh, with, with really big losses, like double digit losses in, in long treasuries year to date. You know, crypto hovering just it at negative for the year. And there's a lot of, you know, uncertainty and markets hate uncertainty. So, in a nutshell, from November to today, we've seen contraction of value, crypto value, equity value, bond value. We've seen a contraction in liquidity, which really doesn't mean a negative liquidity growth, but a contraction in the growth rate of liquidity. Money supply growth has slowed. And I think we're at a, a really important inflection point. So wh- how do you think this plays out uh, then for the rest of the year um, with, the, with the Federal Reserve kind of backing off a little bit yep. here? Uh, you know, it's, it's risk on for markets, or do you think it may, might be a little touch and go for the rest of the year? <sighs> It, it, it's hard to forecast. And I hard, apologize because you know, that's a hard question no, 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 to answer. No, no, no. It, it's, it's, and I'm stumbling because, you know, Yogi Yogi Bear has the great line. You know, it's it's tough to uh, predict, especially about the future, right? And those who have knowledge don't predict. Those who predict don't have knowledge. <laughs> so I'm trying to not be that guy. And it's also exacerbated this year because it's a midterm election year in the United States. So here's here's what we did actually predict in January. And we did it in the form of surprises. So we do this thing, 10 surprises like Byron Ween every year. And the idea of a surprise is you figure out what is consensus. Then you figure out what would be the surprise that would go against consensus that you think has a little better than 50-50 chance of happening. But if it does happen, you make a lot of money. So one of those surprises was that it's a midterm election year and the uh, Democrats are getting slaughtered in the polls. So one thing you know is the price of gasoline and presidential popularity are inversely correlated. So the higher the price, the more they hate him or her, uh, I guess him, uh, the, more, the, the lower the price, the more they like him. So I predict, we predicted that it was likely that the U.S. would do something, either cut a deal with Saudi or release oil from the SPR to get oil prices falling right before the election to get gas prices down. Now, what we didn't see was Russia, you know, creating a kinetic war in in Ukraine. Now, I think the Ukraine situation is much more complicated than people understand. Right? It has to do with oil and gas pipelines, about European reliance on on Russian gas, about NATO wanting to have control of a neutral territory. It's very complicated. And I'm not trying to minimize what's happening to the citizenry. It's bad. But it's actually not different than Iraq. It's not different than Iraq, too. It's not different than Syria. It's not different in Afghanistan. All of those wars are about the same thing. 
control of energy and natural resources and the money that goes along with it because the dollar, at least for now, is still the primary unit of account for oil and gas transactions around the world. And anyone who has threatened that has disappeared, right? Iraq threatened it, they disappeared. Libya threatened it, they disappeared. Uh, you know, now the problem is if China or Russia threaten it, well, we can't make them disappear because they have nuclear weapons. So we have to figure out something else. So we kind of go backhanded against Russia through Ukraine. Uh, but if Russia and China form an alliance that moves oil and gas pricing away from dollars into renminbi or ruble, that's a big that's a big issue. Now, it really bodes well for crypto and all those other things. But I think all of that goes to, I think there'll be some surprises pre-election that put pressure, downward pressure on oil. That could be a peace agreement in Russia, Ukraine. I wouldn't be surprised by that. It could be release of SPR, could be Saudi saying, all right, we'll pump more. So I would, I would watch oil. Second thing that I think is, is likely is, I've been saying this all year, take the under. Right? You know, the market said seven rate hikes. Jamie Dimon said nine. No, wait. The market said five. Jamie Dimon said seven. Goldman said nine. I'm like two, maybe, maybe. So take the under on that. Uh, so I don't think rates are going to rise a lot. I would actually not be surprised to see an announcement of QE uh, sometime, again, pre-election. Remember, Jerome Powell has not been reappointed. It's kind of funny. He was supposed to be reappointed, but he hadn't been reappointed yet. So could he bow to pressure the same way he bowed to Trump um, to get appointed in the first place? For sure. So I wouldn't be surprised if not only do we not get rate hikes, but we get stimulus. Um, you know, they're already talking about giving people food stamps or gasoline uh, uh, checks because of the rising cost of price of, of oil and food. That's buying votes, right? Plain and simple. That's like Argentina or Venezuela buying votes. So it's a long answer to a very complicated question, but in times of uncertainty, I think you should do a couple of things. One, diversify as broadly as possible. Do not put all your eggs in one basket because you don't know which basket is going to hit a landmine. Second is have a lot of liquid assets that you can pounce when things get cheap. You know, I did buy a bunch of Chinese stocks a week ago because they were down 90 and 95%. And there's, there's actually a rule, Meb Faber, who's one of my faves, um, has this rule, you know, the rule of 90%. If a market's down 90%, it's a buy. Now, it <laughs> might go down 95. And you know what's the difference between down 90 and down 95 is you lost half your money. So that sucks. But it will eventually go up 20-fold from there and get back to even. So rule of 90% is, is you got to buy stuff. And I think there are pockets. You know, we did that with oil and gas 18 months ago. You know, when oil hit 2% of the S&P, down from a peak of 9%, like it's not going away. Like even if everybody wanted an EV, which not everybody does, like I can't have an EV because when I get in an EV, I get car sick because the torque is too much. And it's really weird. It's, it's like, you know, CVTs, continuous variable transmissions in the Lexus and EVs. Now it's only in the passenger seat. I don't know if, if I'm driving, if it'd be as bad. So maybe I could try that. But anytime I'm in the passenger seat of a Tesla, I get car sick. It's crazy. Um, but so not everybody's going to have an EV. 
But even if they want them, it's going to take 30 years. So the oil companies were dirt cheap and they're up like you know, 200 plus percent. So it's been good. Um, I still think there, there's value there, uh, value in China. Um, there's definitely lots of value in crypto still. And there's lots of projects in crypto that are just getting started, layer twos, metaverse. So, so many other things to talk about. And Bitcoin's cheap. I mean, Bitcoin is cheap. Now, it might get cheaper, unfortunately. In fact, I just did a webinar earlier today about this, that you know we are in crypto winter, and it's going to go on at least another 12 months, and, and we could go down materially. I don't think we have to, but it's certainly possible. But we're, we're probably... Th- 30-ish percent below kind of, you know, what I think of as, as fair value. We're about uh, 50% below trend and we're, you know, 70% below probably the best indicator of value, which is the comparison to gold. Interesting. Let's let's uh, touch on that a little bit. You did use one of your classic lines, price is a liar. Uh, and, and so, Expand on that a little bit and and how you exactly value the Bitcoin network. And uh, maybe you can start off with how you discovered Bitcoin in the first place. Yeah. So Bitcoin's interesting in that Bitcoin is simply a use case of blockchain technology. That's all it is. Now, it may turn out to be one of the greatest use cases because of what what it is. It's essentially digital gold. What do I mean by that? Well, gold is money. Well, what's money? Well, money is an asset that exists in the absence of a liability. Gold is the only money in the world. Everything else that we all think of as money, whether it's Canadian dollars or US dollars or renminbi or, or shekels, is actually currency. Currency and money are different. Currency actually is an asset of the bank, right? Just let this sink in. Everyone listening, let this sink in. That's why they're called banknotes. Yeah, they're called banknotes. If you have money, you think you have money, and you put it in a bank, it's no longer yours. It's the bank's. It shows up on the bank's balance sheet. We, because I have money in a bank, we have an IOU. Now, under 99% of operating circumstances, those IOUs are money good. However, if you live in Cyprus in 2012, those IOUs are worth 25 cents on the dollar. If you're in Russia right now at Sparebank, they might be worth less. So uh, if you're in you know, La Jolla National Savings Bank in 2009, you got a goose egg. Well, you got your 250K back from the FDIC, but, but those bank notes went to zero because La Jolla went bankrupt because they made a bunch of bad loans. So it's no longer your money. And, and that's fine because we've had this system of banking as our backbone of the financial system for a long time. And, and we trust those, those institutions. But what, what Bitcoin came along and did is, again, if we back up, there were attempts to create digital currency, a bunch of them, e-gold, eagle something, uh, digicash. There were a bunch of them. The reality was, Analog to electronic to digital is really what we're talking about. Analog, again, people like me, old guys, had records, physical black vinyl discs that we put on a turntable and spun around and and listened to music. And then 
we could create electronic versions of those songs on MP3s. And if I want to share a song with you, Scott, in the old days, I'd literally have to take my record album, trot it up to you in Canada and give it to you, and you could listen to it. Better, I could make a copy of it electronically onto an MP3, make a copy of that and send it to you. You didn't care if it was the original or, or the copy. It played just as well. I didn't care. Who cared? The music industry cared because they wanted you to buy your own original. So Napster, the first sharing, you know, decentralized company said, hey, Mark can share his music with Scott. Scott can share his market, uh, music with Mark and it'll be awesome. And they're like, bullshit, awesome. So centralized organization, CEO, main office, server, you arrest the CEO, you lock the main office and you blow up the server, end of Napster. So then people said, well, I want to do that with money. You know, I don't want to carry around my, my bag of money. So in the 1300s, China came up with flying money. It was paper and it used to fly away in the wind. That's what we call it, flying money. And they created banknotes. So you deposited your coins, right? And the original coins used to have pictures of sheep or cows or whatever you used to trade. And you deposit your coins and you got this flying money and you could take it around. But if I had a sack of flying money, you could come and bonk me in the head and steal it. So then we came up with the idea, well, why don't I just leave it in the bank and I'll have this electronic record of that. But here's the thing. We have to trust the bank. Like I have this recurring nightmare, not lying. I go to the ATM, I punch in my code, says zero. Like shit, how would I prove it's not zero? I don't have any statements. It's their word against mine. How would I prove it? I couldn't. So we have a lot of trust in that system. There's no public ledger. So Bitcoin is taking blockchain, a public ledger. Old days, I lend you money. You have to trust me. I have a ledger. I write down, Scott owes me a hundred bucks. Great. What if I write down 200? You come back to pay me a hundred. I'm like, oh, you owe me 200. No, no, you only gave me a hundred. Says right here, 200. So the Medici's came along in 1200 and said, we've got a solution. You have a ledger, you have a ledger. You both write down a hundred. And we, the benevolent Medici's, we will determine that you both wrote down a hundred. Oh, for a small fee, for a small fee. And we'll get really rich and we'll be the trusted third party. Great, works great for 800 years. Now blockchain comes along and says, I don't need you Medici's. I'm going to have a ledger. And that ledger is backed by code. And what do we trust now? When you get lost, do you stop and ask directions? <laughs> no way. Especially not where I live in the South. Because in the South, you ask for directions and say, well, go to where the general store was and take a right. Then go to where the oak tree was and take a left. I don't know where that is. I didn't live here 40 years ago. So that isn't going to work. So what do I do? I pull out Apple Maps or Google Maps and I trust code. So if I have a public, immutable, transparent record that says Mark gave Scott $100, awesome. We don't have to trust anybody. It's right there. So all of that leads us to Bitcoin being a technological evolution. And again, this is a long, long story to how I got there. But I grew up on the left coast. My dad <laughs> sold and installed IBM mainframes. And most people have no idea the center of the universe in tech in 1954 was not Silicon Valley. It was Route 128 in Boston. And there's a little company called DEC, Digital Equipment Corp. It was started with $70,000 of venture capital. And they built mainframe computers as big as a house. 
and they got computing out of government into business. And then Wang and IBM and all these other companies were formed. And from 1954 to 1958, you had this nirvana period to invest in mainframe computers. 14 years later, there was an innovation out in Silicon Valley called the microchip. And suddenly the nexus moved to Palo Alto. And this guy, Don Valentine, invested in this company called Intel, and it turned out pretty well. And it allowed smaller computers, mini computers, to make small businesses have access, right? And to pay thousands and thousands of dollars, but you could get access to computing. Then 14 years later, and why it's always 14 years has to do with the creative class is always young. It's about a half generation and young people don't know what they don't know. So they invent stuff. They can imagine the unimaginable. And so I grew up in Seattle. Many of my friends don't have to work anymore. They were smart enough to go to work for a little company called Microsoft. I thought they looked kind of rough. Google the picture of the original Microsoft 11. Now we all looked rough in the seventies. They looked rougher than most. I shouldn't make fun of them. They're multi-billionaires and I'm not, but it's a funny picture, but I didn't go to work there. My friends did. They're retired. I'm not. So what happened? Well, Bill, Steve Ballmer's mom said, honey, why would you work for that company? She quoted the guy at deck, the incumbent who said no one would ever want a computer in their house. He has 18 billion reasons he was right. Mom was wrong. So now we went from mainframe computers, microcomputers, personal computers. Then 14 years later, innovation around this thing called the internet. There's the famous clip of Brian Gumbel saying, what is internet? What is that little at symbol? And Paul Krugman said, it'll never be more important than a fax machine. Maybe more important than the fax machine. And so created lots of wealth by creating opportunity. And I was at Notre Dame at the time. I invested in Sequoia, founded by Don Valentine. And they invested in this little company called Google, which I will admit we thought was stupid, dumb name. Now it's a verb. And 500K turned into 200 million. Wow. Awesome. There should be a quad at Notre Dame called the Google Quad. And I had the aha moment. Investing in innovation around these technological waves is how you win. 14 years later, okay, there's an innovation around the mobile net. These things came along. And so now we all carry around supercomputers, more powerful than the first NASA computer by like 100x. And we take it for granted, but it allowed all of us to be connected, tens of millions, I mean, actually, I'm tens of billions of these connected devices. And that connectivity created the mobile net. So the internet broke the monopoly that had been in place for thousands of years since the printing press, hundreds of years, the printing press broke the monopoly of the church. The church gave everyone information once a week from the pulpit. Once the printing press came along, people could read if they could read and you could spread information that way. So then the, the governments took over information, media controlled government, I mean, government controlled media, and they gave you your opinion. And then the internet made information bi-directional. So now we all have access to all the information in the world at our fingertips. So the governments can't control it. So it broke that monopoly. So what happened to the value of media monopolies? It went away. Where did it all end up? Apple, Netflix, Google, Alibaba, Amazon, decentralized network companies. So now in 2024, which is still two years from now, the trust net will emerge and blockchain and Bitcoin will make value bi-directional. Mm. And this is the biggest thing that I'll see in my lifetime. And I'll be here a while, but you know, maybe something bigger will happen in your lifetime, but this is the biggest thing I'm gonna see in my lifetime. There's 700, tri 700 trillion dollars of value in the world. 
stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, private businesses, art, collectibles, $700 trillion, all of it, every dollar of it will move onto blockchains in the form of non-fungible tokens. I like the term digital property rights better. It will all trade on blockchains. It will all be powered by cryptocurrencies. And Bitcoin is a subset of that. It is an infrastructure layer, just like TCP IP, which you and I are using right now to communicate. So the end of a long answer, the internet was built on five protocols. TCP IP, the base layer, FTP to transfer files, HTTP to uh, make websites work, SMTP to make email transfer, and www. that connects everything together in the World Wide Web. In the future, Web 3, which will be bigger than Web 1 and Web 2, the evolution, more connectivity, more connected devices, it will all be connected on these protocols, Bitcoin at the base layer, Filecoin like FTP, Ethereum is www. And maybe Solana, Avalanche, Polkadot, or Cosmos in those middle layers. So all of these protocols are communications protocols, but they make the communication not of information and images, but of value. If I want to send you money, you have to have a bank account. I have to have a bank account because it goes across the international border. Two banks owned by the Rothschilds, by the way, get a cut because they signed a treaty 400 years ago. That's BS. That's ridiculous, right? If I have a Bitcoin, I can send it to you for free over Strike Lightning Network, which we own a piece of, and <laughs> that's awesome. Now, free is the wrong number, so eventually Jack's going to have to charge people, but it costs you know 12% for Western Union plus the BIS, so you might get you know 88 cents on the dollar, if you lived in El Salvador, you'd only get 70 cents on the dollar. That's ridiculous. Wow, Mark, you really kind of tied everything together beautifully just from, I guess, humanity really kind of betting on technology. Oh, and but so Scott, I didn't even answer your question. You said, how did I get exposed to it? In 2013, <laughs> which is really funny. It's sad. Um, I made the first of my many bad decisions in Bitcoin. So I was exposed to Bitcoin the same month as the Winklevoss twins. There's a book that you should read called Bitcoin Billionaires. Anyone who hasn't read it should read it. It's an awesome book. Ben Mesrick's a great writer. Story's fantastic. Uh, I got introduced the same month. They're multi-billionaires and I'm not. Why? Because <laughs> they got it, right? They're in Ibiza partying with Charlie Shrem. They got it. I didn't get it. I was at my friend's out in San Francisco and he said, hey, I'm giving back all the money in my hedge fund. I'm going to spend the rest of my time in Bitcoin and blockchain. I was not running drugs on Silk Road. I was not a cryptography student. I didn't get Bitcoin in 2013. But as soon as he said infrastructure, all the stuff I just talked about, I was like, I'm in. So I invested in that fund. That fund, you know, a dollar is worth like 13 or $14. Awesome. That's great. If I'd put the money in the Bitcoin fund, it'd be worth 350. Better. But I didn't. Man. So nine months go by. First quarter of 2014, I wrote about it to my clients. I said, you know, this is interesting. Price was 500 bucks. Like, you know, put 1%, half a percent. I got hate. Hey, clients call up and say, we'll fire you. You're an idiot. Don't ever talk about this again. Go back and do your job. I'm like, wow. Now the price went to 186 by September of 14. I'm like, all right, fine. They were right. Then boom, two months later, it was a thousand. I'm like, no, they're not right. My son graduated from Notre Dame. I said one word, not plastics, like the graduate. You know, so I watched a lot of movies. I said, go out, go to work for Coinbase. 
goes out, talks to Coinbase, like, I don't know, dad, maybe it'll be a big deal. I'm just going to go KPMG. It's safe. Gets me to San Francisco where I want to live. Now, uh, I said you'd hate it, which he did. He quit after nine months. When Coinbase went public, he called me up and said, all right, fine, dad, you're right. But you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm like, oh, do tell. I told you to go to work at Coinbase. I said, yeah, but you didn't lever up the house and put it on Bitcoin. I'm like, you little <laughs> shit. That is true. So second bad decision. And now he works at Snowflake. He's doing fine. I'm really proud of him. He's, he's amazing. But finally, in 16, I got some clients to do it. I did some. And I, I really had that aha moment. And I said, I'm going to spend the rest of my career, what I call chapter three. So chapter one, I work for not-for-profits. And I loved every day of it. I got psychic income, knowing that I was helping the universities. I got underpaid, but I loved it. Chapter two, I built a very nice asset management business, had a lot of fun. Chapter three, all about Morgan Creek Digital, tokenizing the world for 20 years. And chapter four, I'll teach. So I do believe that this technological innovation wave is profound. I think it's the greatest opportunity for wealth creation I've seen. And I think why Bitcoin is so important to me is everyone needs to own it. I have a hashtag get off zero, right? In a couple of years, we'll look back. It will be deemed, mark my words, it will be deemed fiduciarily improper to have zero exposure. Like today, people say, oh, I'm a fiduciary. I couldn't buy. No, you must get exposure. I'm not saying 100%, but you have to have half a percent, 1%, 2%, 5%, whatever. The younger you are, the higher the number. But you have to have exposure because it is the perfect store of value. For 5,000 years, gold has been money. And gold is awesome, right? Since a, you know, a zoot suit to a suit of armor to a you know, Cleopatra suit, time suit. One ounce, bought a fine person suit. Savile Row, one ounce, 1,900 bucks, okay? But gold is not very portable and it's not very divisible. Bitcoin is, right? All the gold in the world fits into Olympic-sized swimming pools. All the Bitcoin fits right here. I don't have all the Bitcoin. In fact, I have none on my phone. Don't SIM swap me. I've been SIM swapped twice. Thankfully, didn't lose anything. No Bitcoin in my hot wallet, all in cold storage. But I believe that everyone has to have a piece of this asset for two reasons. One, the asymmetry, the upside asymmetry is massive. And you talked about Metcalf's law as well. Yeah. Well, well, Metcalf's law is is about exponential growth. So what people, again, people are bad at math generally, but exponential math is really hard. So there are two ways to think about this. One is I take 20 linear steps across the library. I'm at the other side of the library. If I take 20 exponential steps, I'm around the world twice. I get to high five you twice. Okay. So exponential bit. The other example is folding a piece of paper. I typically take a piece of paper, fold it, fold it again, fold it again. Try to fold it seven times. Can't do it. Physically can't fold a piece of paper seven times. Oh, yes, I can. It's like, damn, damn, I can't. (laughs) If you could fold it 20 times, it's as high as a house. 30, it's the atmosphere. 50, it's the sun. 100 is the known universe. The power of exponential math is really, really powerful. So when you have one mobile phone, right? Not valuable. When there are two, valuable, okay? 200, more valuable. 2,000, 2 million, 2 billion, more valuable, but not linearly, exponentially. And that network effect that Metcalf 
uh, discovered applies to all networks, whether it's Apple, whether it's Google, whether it's Microsoft, or whether it's Bitcoin. Networks are incredibly valuable. And the reason they're valuable is the interconnections, right? You and I make a connection and the listeners make connection and one plus one plus one is not three. It could be 13 or 17 because of all the other interconnections that we can make. And so as we build out this this network and as people come to realize that it is a perfect store of value, I think it replaces gold as that perfect money. Now, that doesn't mean other currencies won't will exist. Governments aren't going to give them up. And we're probably going to have CBDCs where it's going to be evil and they're going to be able to seize your assets and reduce the amount of money you can spend because you jaywalked or tweeted something nasty about Trudeau. But I, I get so excited about this space because Bitcoin is a perfect technological solution to an age-old problem, which is how do we store value? And currencies, paper currencies, are not it, right? There have been 775 paper currencies in the history of the world. Three quarters of them no longer exist. Just again, let that sink in for a second. Three quarters of all the currencies in the history of mankind don't exist because governments overspent and devalued themselves into oblivion. Like I have in my, my bag out in the other room, a Roman solidus, which 2,600 years ago was the most powerful currency in the world. If you had a solidus, you were solid, where the word comes from, you were a citizen, right? Today, it's a trinket. Got it for a buck in, in Rome. Why? Well, because they overspent. The Roman empire fell. Then the Ottoman empire fell. Then the British empire fell. And the American empire fell, falling. And Chinese empire will fall. And ultimately, long-term, we'll have a metaverse and we'll all be connected and borders won't matter and nation states won't matter. We're a long way from that. But the path to that is technological innovation. Bitcoin is one, Ethereum is one, and all the things that are being built around the ecosystem are others. Wow. Mark, I know we're already past an hour. I could I could honestly talk to you all day, man. This is this has been so great. You know, you talked about the potential for the innovation of digital assets. How do you see crypto in our lives in five years? How are we using it yeah. on a day-to-day basis? Because I think yeah. that that could be the, the light bulb moment for a lot of people. Because right now, a lot of people see it, and I read it all on Twitter. You know, I'm a Bitcoiner. I got tons of uh, my liquid net worth in, in digital assets. But I see what people are saying. And a lot of people, there's still that disconnect. And yeah. so what, where do you see it in our lives in five years? Yeah, it's important. Uh, it will be invisible. And that, that word's intentional and important. You think about TCP IP that we're using right now. It's invisible. Now think about what actually happens. I'm speaking into a metal and glass box that is going through the airwaves into a cell tower, down into a fiber optic cable, going across over the river and through the woods, out another cell tower down the street from you, into the airwaves, into your metal and glass box, and coming out into your ears in real time. No way. No way can my brain comprehend how that actually works, but I don't need to because it works. Because software is built on top of that, right? Yeah, yeah so it's all, it's, it's, all, it's all innovation. How about money, right? I, whip, I don't whip out, I don't carry money. What do I use? I use a Visa card. 
Visa, that's not money. It's, it's a, it's, Visa is run on a mainframe computer running on COBOL, believe it or not. And what is it? It's a database that batches my transactions for a month and then settles up once a month with the bank. That's all it is. But it's money. Okay. What is money? It's just a medium of exchange, but it's invisible to me. I don't know what my transactions look like at Visa. I don't really care. And if a bad one happens, they forgive it and they go pursue them. And it's all behind the scenes. It's invisible. And so my bank, it's just a bunch of ones and zeros on an account, on a ledger. Now I have to trust them. I like the fact that I can move that into my own ledger where it's under my control, right? And that is permanent and immutable and cryptographically secure. So in the future, we will bank ourselves through Bitcoin. We will use a layer two solution like Strike or others to transfer money from fiat to fiat across the rails. Like right now, we use old rails, the SWIFT system, ACH system. And I heard a great line. They said, you know, fintech doesn't have any tech. <laughs> There's no innovation. We basically took Chime and we made a bank that's internet bank instead of a physical branch, but they're still using SWIFT and ACH and you still got to wait three days for your money. There's no innovation. It's just a glitzy UX and has a huge valuation. Bitcoin and crypto is true innovation. We have new rails and new T0 settlement, no T plus three anymore, T0, T instant. And so all of this innovation will eventually be invisible. And I won't use my Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee. I will still use my Starbucks app, but it will settle in a lightning payment using some portion of my digital assets. Maybe it's stable coins because I don't want to take the, the, the short-term drift. Probably will be a stable coin. It'll never be a CBDC as far as I'm concerned. Again, we could talk all day about it, but the future of digital assets is bright. But more importantly, it's dark. And I don't mean dark as in seedy and seemly and, and the dark web. I mean dark in that you won't see it. You don't need to see it. And once something becomes invisible, once like you get in an airplane, in the early days, who got on an airplane? Literally, who was the first person to get on an airplane and say, no way, right? Who was the first person that had surgery with anesthesia? What if it didn't work, right? But it's invisible now. I go in a hospital, I get, I put on the gas mask and I'm fine. But once technology gets to a certain point, it's invisible to us. And that's where crypto will go. Yeah. And I think it's dark in, as well, because, you know, what you said earlier about Zoom we never imagined using something that is slightly better than a fax machine in the way that we're using it now. And Correct. so there's probably going to be innovation and inventions coming that we haven't even thought of yet. Yes. And the key, the key to great success in investing is the ability to imagine the unimaginable. Uh, last question for you, Mark. Like I said, man, I feel like we need to do a whole series because I got to about Happy. three or four questions with you and, and there's so much that we could go into. Um, you've seen great investors, you've talked to great investors, you've coached people on investing, and investors usually have habits or things that they do consistently to get success. Uh, what's something that you think maybe retail investors or retail traders maybe need to do, need to do consistently to really kind of level up and get to the next step? Yeah, the easiest answer is invest. 
the more you invest, the better you become at investing. And the key there is, is start early and make all your mistakes when you're young because they're less costly because you don't have as much money. Um, so do it a lot. So I say winners lose more than losers. Don't be afraid of losing. Don't be afraid of making mistakes. Own them. Just like your point, you don't let little mistakes become big mistakes. Losers average losers. Winners press winners. So Peter Lynch said it best. Most investors do the opposite of what you should do. Most investors pull their flowers because they're afraid of losing or having to pay tax, and they water their weeds to prove they're right and the market's wrong. The market's always right. You're wrong. Just move on. Pull your weeds, water your flowers, let your winners run, and just keep investing. So the more you invest, the better you get. The other thing is study great investors. Read books about great investors. Talk to great investors. Go on Twitter. People share incredible stuff on Twitter. I mean, Wall Street Cynic is one of the greatest short sellers in the entire world, and he's on Twitter. Mark Cahodes, also great short seller on Twitter. I mean, there are incredible people on Twitter who have, you know, Howard Marks, at Howard Marks Book, is on Twitter. Uh, he's also all over the internet and read all his letters. So study what great investors do and get better, because the thing that makes greatness, you know, born great, it's deliberate practice not practice for practicing. I go shoot foul shots all day in the yard and I'll be bad. I need a coach to show me how to deliberately practice. Now, I don't want to be a great free throw shooter, so I'm not going to do that. But I do study what other great investors do, listen to podcasts, talk to people, uh, get mentors, but most importantly, just invest. In fact, I sent out a tweet, uh, advice to my younger self, I don't know, a year ago or something. And and it basically said all of that. It said, invest more, read more, read philosophy, read books, don't read news, uh, engage with people, admit, you know, have the ability to admit your mistakes. You know, uh, Coach Smith, since we're in basketball season, March Madness, you know, Coach Smith, one of the greatest coaches, um, said, everyone makes mistakes. The key is to Ralph. Recognize it, admit it, learn from it, and forget it. The forgetting it is the hard part. How many times, and Coach Gay, maybe the greatest basketball coach, I hate, I know Carolina people hate when I say that, and it's his swan song, but I got to meet him a number of years ago and got halfway through the, the meeting. And he said, you know, Mark, you and I have the same job. I'm like, okay, coach, humor me. What do I have in common with the greatest basketball coach that's ever lived? I, I don't see it. So we'll think about it. We both try to identify talent. We try to recruit that talent. We try to bring that talent together. We form a team. We've set up a game plan. We put the team on the court and we sit down. I never take a shot. You never actually make an investment. And at the time, I was just an allocator. Like, Holy shit, I have the same job as Coach K. Awesome. And he said, do you know what separates the great player slash investor from the average? I said, no, you're going to tell me. He says, the greats focus on the next play. The average focus on last play. Watch the tournament this weekend. You will see people miss a shot, go down and commit a stupid foul because they're thinking about missing the shot. The greats don't even remember taking the shot. They're back playing defense, make a steal, make a layup. Great players forget. Great investors forget. Don't get bogged down by making mistakes and just keep doing it. Keep throwing them up. Powerful. Mark, that was a great way to finish uh, this uh, conversation. Thank you so much for your time, brother. I really do sure. appreciate it. And I hope that we get to uh, chat again soon. Uh, we will. Thanks. And uh, thanks again for the honor of being numero uno. Thank you, sir. Wow. A real power hour with Mark Yusko. If you enjoyed this, 
smash that like button, hit subscribe. We have lots more to come. And I feel like we only just scratched the surface with Mark and his depth of knowledge and experience in investing and especially getting into digital assets. I really liked how he connected the dots from the early beginnings of money, how it evolved into banknotes, and how it's evolving into blockchain technology. Mark is very active on Twitter. Give him a follow at Mark Yusko and let him know you heard him on the Hot Wallet Podcast. From the bottom, ain't no half-stepping. I'm the dog, I made it through so they don't ask questions. Long Beach and it ain't no half-repping. Once a dog, always a dog, so they don't ask questions. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.